Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. In this week's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with mentor and friend Steph Lowe from The Natural Nutritionist. Steph and I cover a lot of ground in this episode, discussing everything from organizing preconception blood testing, various morning sickness strategies, right through to the often misunderstood natural physiological anemia that occurs during the later stages of pregnancy. If preconception goals are in store for you in the next, say, one to two years, or if you are currently pregnant, then this episode is one that you won't want to miss. Would you do me a favor? If you love this episode and found value in it, would you reach out to me on Instagram and share your top takeaways? Hi, Steph, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So today we're talking all about pregnancy nutrition strategies and also some of the, I suppose, myths and misconceptions around pregnancy, which I know you love discussing. But before we get into that, I'd love if you could just share a little bit about your own journey into nutrition and then also sort of your progression through with the natural nutritionist. Yeah, awesome. So like many of us who currently work as practitioners helping others to achieve optimal health, we have our own health story, which I guess started that that interest. And mine is a very long story that starts as a teenager on a mission to lose weight, which at the time I thought would um, equate to happiness. So I lost the 20 kilos and realized that I still wasn't happy. And so, you know, that the weight loss side of things was quite a fascinating experience because back in the day, it was obviously very calorie focused and low fat. So of course there were some pretty dire consequences in terms of hormones and naturally brain health that I didn't quite understand as a teenager, but obviously came to understood in hindsight, but the focus sort of shifted more to the mental health for me personally, where someone I met upon moving to Melbourne from Townsville encouraged me to go gluten-free And for me personally, it was night and day in terms of how I felt mentally and emotionally. And it was definitely the catalyst to start to understand the healing power of food. So whilst it was gluten that I initially removed, I then made this significant transition from what was low fat and lots of products that were 99% fat free or 97% fat free into a whole food plan, like a whole food nutritional approach, which was pretty life-changing for me and inspired me to go back to university for postgraduate studies so I could become a nutritionist and help teach others what I had experienced firsthand. So that was 2009. I did my postgrad, graduated in yeah 2011 and started TNN and the rest is history per se, but it's been an awesome journey. 10 years into practicing, I'm still learning every day from my clients and obviously science as things evolve. And I just feel so lucky that I get to call this work. And then more recently, since becoming a mother myself nearly three years ago, my niche has really become preconception, pregnancy and postpartum which is just like absolutely the best area of work that, you know, the most enjoyable part of, 
I guess, my career trajectory. So I'm excited to talk about that with you today. Yeah, definitely. I love how the the career progression and I suppose the focus in clinic changes as your goals, I suppose, change because before that you're quite athlete focused. Yeah, my triathlon days. That's, you know, a long time ago now. It's how I met my husband Oh, probably nearly eight years ago and I was doing a lot of endurance myself and and certainly with the business, with the natural nutritionist and LCHF endurance, but things have changed in, yeah, like I said, the last three years. So that's been great and I think, yeah, probably more enjoyable for me, although I do, do still work with some endurance athletes. It's not the focus. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we'll get into today's topic. I thought a good place to start, we'll obviously go through a bit of an overview of things I suppose to be looking out for and setting you up for success across the different trimesters. But to begin with, if say, for example, you have a new client coming to see you at the start of trimester one, what are those first few things you're doing with them, I suppose, from a nutritional perspective, and then also perhaps uh, blood testing wise as well? Yes. So I will answer your question. But what I want to say before I do is that let's set things up about six months prior to our conception day, which isn't the conversation in our culture. You know, what what sort of happens in summary is that we may or may not have been told to take folate or we are on the first antenatal visit and we're given that that piece of paper of foods to avoid and, and everything that's very fear-based and there's not enough of a detailed conversation around what we can actually be doing right. So in an ideal world, We're looking at around that six-month window prior to our ideal conception date. And the big focus there is actually looking at the microbiome because we know now that we're going to pass our microbiome, that ecosystem, onto our baby, whether that's through the birth canal with a vaginal birth and or breastfeeding. Obviously, there's vaginal seeding options for cesarean-born babies, but you know, when women hear that for the first time, you can literally see all the light bulbs go off where it's like, right, this is so important. I need to obviously understand what my biome looks like. And then if there are any imbalances, have time. So that's mm. six months, if possible, to rebalance and create this beautiful flourishing ecosystem that we can pass on to the baby. So that's where the testing side of things would start a little earlier in, in the piece. So mm. not trimester one, but in that preconception window where we'll certainly ideally being stool testing, be doing stool testing to look for an understanding of that ecosystem and, and what needs to improve. Yep. Yep. I love that. And I think um, we have touched on sort of preconception care earlier um, in the show, but didn't actually talk about microbiome testing. So that is a really good point to mention. And you're obviously doing that with all women, not just those who are experiencing, say, gut or GI symptoms. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think we're really used to, like we've been conditioned to think, all right, yeah, I've got bloating or I've got, you know, some sort of irritable bowel situation or I'm constipated and, yes, okay, that is clearly, you know, the gut and something that would point directly to the need for a stool testing. However, that famous Hippocrates saying all disease starts in the gut, which we flip around to to add, so too does all health. So, you know, many other, if not all, symptoms can manifest in the gut. And if we don't have an understanding of what's going on, then we we tend to fall into that trap that we see in this day and age with like an over-access to information of doing like all the things, right? Mm. The kombuchas and the this culture and the this probiotic. And it becomes 
very unpersonalised, which I'm very against. I like to make things as personalised and as focused as we need so that we are focusing on, you know, the quick wins per se and rather than trying to do everything, which is not possible and often leads to like that whole analysis paralysis and a lot of overwhelm, especially when it's related to fertility, I find. Yeah, definitely. And aside from the gut testing, any other tests that you specifically recommend uh, in that preconception phase? I would ideally be doing a full suite of bloods as well. As you can imagine, if we talk about the T1 example, trimester one that you mentioned earlier, if you're then finding out that you've got really low iron, for example, that's probably not going to feel really great. That might feel a little bit stressful that you're starting sort of behind the eight ball per se. So if we're starting six months earlier and we do see some imbalances, you know, not just iron, but obviously we can look at you know, our B vitamins, we can look for any inflammation, we can understand our thyroid function, you know, all those cofactors mm. that we look at like zinc and selenium and iodine and vitamin D. Um, we have time. So we have, again, that six-month window to, to recorrect any deficiencies and achieve optimal health before we're already pregnant. So yeah. the blood test is quite comprehensive, but again, it would be personalized depending on you know, obviously the consultation that I would have and the medical history and the conversation that I would conduct via that first appointment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do obviously have some favorites, like I mentioned, of course, we'd also look at folate because that mm. leads into the whole sort of prenatal vitamin conversation as well. Yes, definitely. So going back, I suppose then to suppose you've done all of your preconception care and you've set yourself up really well um, and you do fall pregnant and you're in that trimester one phase, what are sort of the next steps? Is there anything you would look at like reassessing in that trimester one? Yeah. So the reassessment will definitely come from, you know, what was flagged earlier if we are in that situation where we've had some labs done in the six months prior. So it would obviously be repeating, you know, if it was the iron panel or the mm-hmm. thyroid panel to have a look at, all right, how have things improved, but to obviously get a new baseline because Mm. there are, you know, certain things, especially that whole iron conversation that changes very rapidly over the course of pregnancy. So I do like to get an understanding of where things are at in trimester one and then set up a testing schedule into T2 and T3, which changes. And yeah, I think the most important is going to be the iron panel, which will look at obviously we don't just do ferritin. We we look at eye and transferrin, transferrin saturation. Then we'll ask for our full blood evaluation so we can look at hemoglobin. And then because inflammation can create a pseudo iron deficiency, I'll add something like C-reactive protein and, and keep that as one of the focus points over the course of the pregnancy, especially from 20 to 36 weeks with hemodilution, which I know we will talk about. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose I found it really interesting. I'll be 12 weeks when this comes out, but I'm 10 (laughs) weeks pregnant at the moment. And I went to the doctor to have my trimester one appointment. And I was really curious to see what conversation would be had with my GP and also what tests would be recommended as standard. Mm. Uh, And yeah, it was really interesting. I was actually shocked at how little testing is actually included in that trimester one appointment. I didn't request additional tests. I just actually ordered those myself because I, that was just easier for me. (laughs) And the other thing, the only other thing that the doctor mentioned was looking up the list of foods to avoid during pregnancy online and sticking to that, which I thought would be an interesting thing for us to discuss as well. 
Yeah, it's not dissimilar. You know how when we were talking about PCOS mm. on my podcast on health, happiness, and humankind, we were sort of we came to that realization where we we're like, you know, with all due respect, a GP is not actually the right person to mm. go to for this sort of a condition. And I actually think the same thing applies for preconception and pregnancy. They're just actually not trained, right? I mean, of course, they're they're very very trained in lots of areas of health and medicine. That's why they're called a GP, a general practitioner, but they don't specialise in something like preconception or pregnancy. So, yeah, unfortunately, I do hear this all too much where the answer is like, oh, what do you want to test that for? Like mm. it, it becomes this sort of this often heated debate or even argument, which I think could is unnecessary because we've got the Medicare system where we can, we can actually be proactive about our health but unfortunately the system is very reactive so a lot of my clients are like you they've sort of given up trying to find a doctor who's like-minded so they just go and get you know a baseline like essentially whatever's going to be approved through medicare and then allocate some of the budget per se to tests that they can order through ice cream like a consumer direct site or a practitioner like yourself or myself using naturopath, for example. So that tends to be where things are headed in, in my clinic because yeah, everyone's sick of having such a terrible experience and it's, it's hard to find a holistic doctor, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And I did look up, you know, in my local area to try and find one and I did find someone who looked quite good. But then, of course, understandably, they have an out-of-pocket expense of $90. And I thought by the time I drive half an hour to the appointment and have the $90 appointment and get the blood test referral, have the blood test, go back for another $90 appointment and drive another half an hour and sit in the waiting room for an hour, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to pay for it myself because it'll be easier for me. <laughs> totally. And the holistic doctors that do exist that are incredible yep. have an initial consultation fee of about $400 sometimes. Yes, and absolutely. so when you're mm. already seeing a nutritionist or a naturopath, well, you don't need another initial consultation. Mm. But that's obviously how things have set up, have been set up and I understand as to why. But, yeah, you can quickly do the maths on the most effective way, high-yield way, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I was definitely intrigued equally and I would say both shocked and not shocked at that mm -hmm. appointment um, in how little was sort of included and, and the tests that were put on that uh, request and then also, I suppose, the limited advice and, and knowledge that was given around those foods to avoid. I didn't actually even look it up because I know a little bit about that already. But, yeah, I thought we could touch on some of those foods that women are traditionally told to avoid during mm -hmm. pregnancy and how that can also lead to then eating a really limited, you know, eating like dry crackers. What I will say is that, you know, I will give credit to Lily Nichols and the mm -hmm. amazing work that she does in this space. Um, I'll send you some, some research papers to add to the show notes because hearing this for the first time can actually be like quite eye-opening because it is very, you know, opposite essentially to what we've known and it's it's literally about 30 years that I'm talking so most of your listeners probably don't know any different because this is the cultural message mm. I think you know I'll start I'll start with eggs because I think that's something that came up for me I remember when I was pregnant with Grace and I was posting this is back in the day when we used to post photos of our food breakfast <laughs> on our Instagram <laughs> And there was a runny poached egg in there and I had all these DMs and I was like, oh, that's what's going on. Everyone's freaking out. You know, it's this, this what uh, Lily Nichols calls the listeria hysteria. 
<laughs> which I think is which is a, a great little line art because essentially, you know, with with eggs, what the conversation has been like, why you know, quote unquote, you can't eat eat runny eggs, which is false, is because of this risk of listeria. And the thing is about, pardon me, sorry, with regards to eggs, it's the salmonella risk. Let me start that again. <laughs> so with regards to eggs, it's the salmonella risk. And, and that's where we've got to look at the, the science, right? What is the research telling us? So if we're looking at food quality, which I'd always be prioritizing for all of my clients and even more so in a pregnancy scenario, if we're looking at our organic and our pasture raised eggs, the risk of salmonella is in, in between one in one, uh, one in 12,000 and then one in 30,000. So it's a really, really low risk. And this is the thing where we have to do our risk assessment. So perhaps a cafe where you don't really have an understanding of where the eggs have come from, if you are more risk adverse, by all means, avoid that. But you certainly don't have to be avoiding, avoiding one eggs at all. And runny eggs are, you know, very safe. But you know, of course, there is a very small risk, so I do understand how it might be approached. But we can't be in this sort of fear-based pregnancy. I think there's so much of that, just like you said, with getting the piece of paper, the handout, which is given to you, and it's just like literally avoid all these foods. You know, eggs are a beautiful, fertile food. They're the first thing that comes to mind when I think of choline, which is that nutrient that is probably the unsung hero in terms of, you know, the focus is so much on folate, but choline is so important, especially preconception in, in trimester one, but an incredible nutrient for our whole pregnancy, which is, you know, something that we certainly don't want to be lacking in by avoiding eggs altogether. And then I suppose on the, the fear side of things, something that this is, I suppose, off topic from the nutrition side of things, but obviously it being only 10 weeks at the moment, something I've found personally from the dealings with my doctor and the conversations that I've had, it, it almost like the expectation is that you might not get to 12 weeks. Like I personally have felt that. I don't know if you've had anything similar, but you don't get like the referrals obviously for the hospital or anything like that until much later in pregnancy. And I feel like, again, it's that undercurrent of fear that something is going to go wrong. And yeah, I've just found it really interesting. I don't let it affect me, obviously, but I just think it's interesting how we see those patterns sort of repeated across multiple areas. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say it. <laughs> that If we look at, so the eggs is one example, mm. and then, you know, soft cheeses is another, yes. which we'll talk about. And then of course, vitamin A and, and liver mm. will go there as well. But, you know, I just don't understand how the the I don't understand the intellect about being so fear based about a food, mm. yet we're being you know probably overly liberal with our recommendations for the vaccine for pregnant women. And I you know I think let's try and use logic here and try and look at the facts rather than fear. And the cheeses is an interesting conversation because people are quite worried about listeria. Circling back to what I was saying before, the soft cheeses in Australia, all of them are pasteurized. Mm. So that's a heat treatment that's going to destroy the potentially harmful bacteria. So 
most women fall off their chair when they hear for the first time that they can have camembert and brie and things like this because, again, they've been essentially told to avoid and many women have felt like they've been missing out. Now, I don't think you have to eat soft cheese from a nutrient density point of view, so that's a slightly different conversation, but I, I certainly think that eggs and then looking at the liver pate, like these are the superfoods that are absolutely going to nourish our pregnancy and, and beyond. Yes, yeah, definitely. And it's with the liver side of things and the vitamin A is that same paper from years and years ago that always resurfaces when people are worried about the vitamin A conversation, which... It's 1995 and yeah. it was it was a study on synthetic vitamin A at extremely high doses. Mm. And unfortunately, that literally became this case of Chinese whispers where, you know, it, natural sources of vitamin A were quote-unquote banned. We saw a lot of prenatal companies pull the vitamin A from their formulation because of that cultural fear. And then, you know, the sad irony of that is vitamin A is really essential, especially from a preconception point of view. And, you know, liver is our original, our OG superfood. It's folate, iron, B vitamins, the vitamin A, as we've mentioned. You know, there's, you can't beat that in terms of nutrient density. And for a relatively small amount, you know, I'm talking mm. 200 grams across a whole week. So especially if you have got food aversions and if you, you know, you're, you've got all day sickness, then being able to somehow weave that in, even if you hide it for yourself in a spag bowl is so powerful in pregnancy when we often can't eat the way we once did or, or wanted to with all, you know, with all good intentions at the start. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely something we were talking about, obviously, pre-recording that I've been struggling with, not too much, but a little mm. bit, the food aversion side of things. And in clinic, when I've had clients as well, often preconception and in those initial phases, they have amazing intentions about all the liver that they're going to eat and then all of the <laughs> amazing vegetables and meats and things that they're going to eat. And then they come to you about week eight and they're like, I just can't, I can't, I can't, I yeah, can't stomach anything. Like and ways around it, obviously, which we can consult on. But if we look at the, the, the stats, I think what's most fascinating is that in terms of the food poisoning, which is mm. kind of the, 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 the fear, um, plant foods are the cause of about 50%. So you know, that's why we're given the advice to eat fresh food and to avoid salad bars and, and older food, mm. which I would agree with, um, but we don't tell women not to have any plant food, do we? So no. we've got to start to apply, apply logic and look for obviously food quality, fresh food, and absolutely distinguish the difference between really high doses of synthetic vitamin A and natural whole food sources, which are really, really important for this phase of our life and certainly into postpartum. Yeah, and very safe. And I think I often mention to clients when we are talking about all of those different foods, thinking about like when was the last time you actually got food poisoning in Australia? Mm. Because I, I don't know about you, but for me, the first and only time I've ever had food poisoning in Australia was when I was five years old and it was from a really disgusting like deli thing inside a shopping mall where I had a ham <laughs> and cheese sandwich and I got sick, which is something I would never eat nowadays. So I think going back to what you said before about applying that common sense logic, it's so important. Yeah. I, when I was pregnant with Rose, I got food poisoning from a scallop. Mm. 
and it was at a very fancy restaurant in Melbourne. So, you know, it made it just made me kind of not laugh, but, you know, think about how you cannot wrap yourself in cotton wool and it's going to happen. And I was fine. It was unpleasant for a few hours and I was obviously fine, but um, it certainly wasn't any of the aforementioned food, was it? It wasn't eggs. It wasn't soft cheeses. It wasn't liver pate. You know, it was a scallop, which wasn't raw either, right? So, you know, yeah, you have to, we have to be mindful that there are risks everywhere we go. But, yes, that food quality is key because you, you, you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't eat anything um, from that shop that you mentioned on a good day, let alone in pregnancy, because you just have no idea how long it's been sitting around exactly. for and fresh is always best. Yep, yep. So it definitely is that common sense side of things. And then touching on the food aversions, is there anything, I suppose, from a nutritional perspective or even supplement-wise that we can look at introducing if we are experiencing I'm not going to call it morning sickness, but all day sickness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the foundation is going to be blood sugar control, which is why we do have to adjust our meal frequency and our eating windows. So probably one of the first things that I'm doing is changing that sort of decreased meal frequency into an increased meal frequency. So maybe eating every two hourly, but not obviously big portions, but just having that, that extra food in, which can, I find often take the edge off a little bit of the nausea. So, you know, establishing that with the right balance of macronutrients where possible, obviously, again, with aversions, we're not going to be aiming for like six cups of vegetables a day, but if we can get pretty smart with, you know, obviously not just having carbs by themselves. So if you need something in the morning and you just want to have a piece of sourdough or paleo bread with some peanut butter and banana, like these are our beautiful B6 foods, that key nutrient that can help with all day sickness, but you've added your carbs with your fats from the peanut Mm -hmm. butter, for example. So you're always looking for that aim by balancing your blood sugar. It's very easy to go very heavy on the carbs and your carbohydrate requirements do increase, but we don't want to end up just having starch and not having any veggies or not enough protein, which is really common and and quite easy to do when you've got a lot of aversions. You know, I just craved ham, cheese and tomato toasties. (laughs) but you can make the best version of what you're feeling like, right? So you can source your produce really well and and do it properly rather than going through the (laughs) drive-through. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, I've had a couple of clients that, yeah, we've just really worked on like how the cravings that you are having, how can we make those into healthier, better options with really good quality ingredients? And nearly there's nearly always a solution. Absolutely. So yeah, the key nutrient is B6, which we can look at obviously via the diet, but then if someone needs more support, we can check how much B6 is in the prenatal Mm -hmm. and look at doing um, an additional one or two doses to that. Roughly we do sort of 25 meg three times a day if it's needed, but there Mm -hmm. will be six in most prenatals. So we take out one of the serves usually. Um, But on that prenatal, they they do contain zinc. And even though um, we would give him the the directions to always make sure you, you don't have zinc on an empty stomach or that you've always had food, I sometimes find that is forgotten and Mm. so you're going to feel significantly worse if you're having any supplements with zinc um so you might move those till later on the later in the day depending on what that full supplement schedule looks like yeah definitely it does make a big difference and anything else like uh, acupuncture have you found that to Mm. be helpful yeah some people find that really helpful there's a few spots around the Mm. risk that you you can do and then the ear seating spots where you get the little 
jewel left in the year that you can press can be quite helpful. Yeah, like I think most women are willing to try anything. So we look for obviously all these natural interventions, ginger, that's why, you know, anyone that's had any degree of car sickness or seasickness will know about ginger, even if it's from something more commercial like travel calm, but you can do ginger in many different ways, including herbal teas or, you know, the, the fresh root, which you can um, put in your smoothie or you can brew yourself. And that's a really great ingredient to try and include across the day. Definitely does make a big difference. Ginger, <laughs> I found ginger and peppermint as well. And so you mentioned blood sugar control being one of those key foundations that really helps with reducing the nausea. How does that, I suppose, sort of set us up in terms of risk of gestational diabetes later in pregnancy? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the conversation is very connected, right? Because if mm. you're just, if you've got these food aversions and you're relying a lot on just carbohydrates, well, you're not only um, not optimizing your nutrient density because you haven't got the adequate proteins and fats and non-starchy veggies, well, yeah, you are going to be increasing your risk, although there's a big genetic component here. So, of course, there are many women that eat lots of carbs and never get GD, so it's not obviously directly correlative. But I think establishing or doing your best to have good blood sugar control is important to be working on throughout all stages of the pregnancy because when you're around that sort of 26-week window and there's the discussion around the oral glucose tolerance test, well, you want to have been preparing for that because it's uh, much easier to have the blood sugar control set up from as early as possible. Mm, yeah. And is that something that throughout the trimesters you continue to monitor with most of your clients, like looking at, say, HbA1c? Yeah, for sure. So with um, that whole conversation around the oral glucose tolerance test, um, I guess if we look at that, Australia has a very one-size-fits-all approach and, and we're sort of, you know, it's like going in for a haircut appointment. Everyone does the same thing at X weeks, whereas when we understand blood sugar control, we know we have other blood tests. So if the HbA1c, so glycated hemoglobin, which is our diabetes diagnostic, um, is a three-month trend. So if we're testing that at 12 weeks, well, it's telling us, okay, so what has been my trend over the, the trimester one and, and so on and so forth. So we can actually test that regularly to, to look at any strong changes. Now, that was never recognised in pregnancy until the pandemic because the oral glucose tolerance test requires the female to be testing and being in a clinic for essentially a couple of hours or three hours. And obviously, the, we, the, we, we didn't want to have that sort of unknown risk at the height of the pandemic. But the, the blessing was is that we started to recognise that there was another way and that we didn't actually have to have that one size fits all, especially for women who were low risk, who were, you know, a healthy weight, who had no prior history of GD or diabetes in the family, no PCOS, you know, no other medical history that would indicate risk. Most women, again, don't know this. So many people will say to me, oh, but I had to do the oral glucose tolerance test. I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, you don't have to do anything. But it's why I have this discussion so much is to empower my clients and my female audience online to know that there is another way. There's also fructosamine, which is that measure over a two to three week period. So 
the argument against HbA1c is if you're doing it at 26 weeks, well, it's not telling you about week 26. Like I said, it's telling you for the three months prior. Whereas if we do fructosamine around that time, that's looking at what your blood sugar doing is doing in that quote-unquote risky part of pregnancy, which the risk certainly doesn't apply to the majority but because it applies to the minority and we're in that high-risk Australian approach, we yeah, have wanted to screen everyone, mm. whereas, you know, I think we are moving away from that slowly. But, you know, I've never done an oral glucose tolerance test and I don't want to drink 75 grams of sugar and just wait and see how I respond when I never eat refined sugar, you know, more than once a year, right? So it just doesn't make sense, especially when the testing criteria is based off a female who would eat about 150 grams of carbs a day. And I don't eat that much, even if I try. Mm. And a lot of my clients don't. So that's why, unfortunately, we are seeing a lot of false positives because, one, the female doesn't eat a lot of carbohydrates because she prioritizes real food. And then, two, how is her body going to respond to drinking the equivalent of two cans of Coke? It's nuts to think that that's actually a, a good way to assess blood sugar control. Yeah, it's I mean, what I What I did with my pregnancy is out of interest was I just bought a home glucose monitoring kit and I finger pricked every now and then so I could learn about my response to, you know, poor sleep, my response to certain carbs, my ham, cheese and tomato toasty, my salt and vinegar, coconut oil chips that I wanted to eat. And I think that's really empowering. I never had high blood sugar ever, even when I was eating more carbs than normal. And that's not going to apply to everyone, but I think you know, certainly even offering to do home blood sugar monitoring before an oral glucose tolerance test, depending on who your midwife is or what sort of care you're in. If you don't have high blood sugar, you don't have GD. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that the thing is we're often just not given another option or even made aware that there is an alternative, which is wonderful that, you know, I guess those clients that are working with someone like you or another practitioner that is aware of these different options can actually help them with that because sadly we're just not told about it most of the time that's the thing and my, i don't actually say to my clients or oh, don't do the mm, glucose tolerance test i just present them with all the options and when anyone hears it's 75 grams of sugar and obviously the the lead-in with the requirements for how many grams of carbs like I mean, I think nine and a half out of 10 people have chosen just to do fructosamine and HbA1c a couple of times throughout pregnancy. Mm. And then those that are interested, like I was, bought the kit, which is about $50. And I still use it to this day when I'm when I'm having the breastfeeding nights where I'm up all night and I you know, think I'm hungry, but I'm not. It's just your blood sugar control mm. off the back of poor sleep. And it does give you really interesting information. It's a quick finger prick in the morning. It's not painful and it's very straightforward to understand how you're responding to pregnancy and, and food changes and sleep changes. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's definitely something I'll, I think I'll do when I get to that mm. stage later on. It's definitely really interesting to give women that different option and sort of see like the light bulbs go off, I suppose, when you do explain that. I mean, I would feel awful if I drank 75 grams of glucose you, and had to you imagine the that you would need after the carb coma like i think honestly, i would pass out <laughs> and the number of women who just feel horrendous yeah. like so if they've done it once and learned the hard way like, i am never doing that again because i felt horrific i had to go home and sleep and i got the jitters and i nearly fainted and so on and so forth like obviously not everyone responds that way but if you've ever done it 
um, and had that experience. Well, hopefully our discussion has explained why. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's always good to know there is another way. Definitely. And just the last thing I sort of wanted to touch on was we, we spoke about iron earlier mm. and you did mention the hemodilution, which is um, what occurs. I believe it starts occurring around 20 weeks. Is that mm. correct? Yeah. Just if you could explain a little bit about what that is that's occurring and sort of what happens with our iron levels around that time and, and what's often, I suppose, mentioned to women when they are testing their iron at that time. Yeah, so hemodilution is yeah, an absolute normal part of pregnancy. So the word sort of gives away what it means, but essentially an, an influx of fluid, which is what happens when you're pregnant, um, decreases the concentration of what's in the blood. So it's diluted. So the blood is diluted. So we, we then start to see a decrease in things like iron and, and, and ferritin and hemoglobin. And iron physiology is relatively complicated, mm. but I think the biggest, well, there's lots of issues, but the biggest issue that is still going on is that the, the reference ranges and certainly the GPs don't seem to understand that normal physiologic anemia that is very healthy and very normal to see in pregnancy. So we're using reference ranges that are one, outdated, two, not for optimal health, and three, certainly not applied in pregnancy. So almost all women are told they've got low iron and that they have to take Verigrad C or Multifer. And it's a real issue because one, we're not interpreting the reference ranges accurately for T1 and T2 and T3 because they're different for each trimester. And then two, only ferritin's being looked at, which is that classic example of a lack of understanding around iron physiology. You know, the ferritin can be as low as 11 to 15 in pregnancy. And as long as the hemoglobin's quite high, like, uh, you know, around 110 or even higher, depending on what stage of the pregnancy we're talking about, there is no concern. There's adequate supply for the baby. And what's interesting in my experience is I have lots of clients that go through what we've been discussing with, the, you know, the ferritin being used and the conversation around supplements and then worse still iron infusions, which we can talk about. But I've only had two home births with midwifery care and they never look at ferritin. They only look at hemoglobin. So they've never been concerned, even with, rose when my ferritin was 15 which a gp would you know lose mm. their mind over and we see this all the time so i think you know first and foremost i think we need to be using pregnancy reference ranges so that's the big issue because it's it's daunting and stressful to see these red or bold or asterisk results especially in pregnancy right but we we need to make sure we're getting the panel, the iron panel, and then the um the full blood evaluation with the hemoglobin interpreted correctly. Mm. And then we really need to understand iron physiology. Doses greater than say between sixty and eighty meg a day cause this significant rise in hepcidin, which blocks iron entry into the cell. So giving someone a hundred milligrams of multifor a day doesn't reflect an understanding of iron physiology because 100 is greater than 60 and 100 is greater than 80. So you're giving that female too much. So it blocks the iron entry into the cell, including the dietary iron that she's trying so hard to consume. And it makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. And then the client or the female goes back to the doctor 
and the results haven't improved? And the answer is I'll take it twice a day. So take 200 milligrams a day. I mean, if I've never had a face palm moment in my life, it's it's around this, right? Because it just doesn't make sense. And then we head towards iron infusions, which I strongly disagree with because it's, you know, certainly really high levels, which we know to be inflammatory. I think the least amount of interventions in pregnancy the better. And iron infusions are a self-fulfilling prophecy because the female never had true anemia anyway. And then the high iron from the infusion blocks the entry. So we just spin our wheels. Like it's just absurd if we really apply logic to it. Yes. It's really interesting that the iron infusion side of things and Rachel Arthur, who we talked about a little on, on your show, I did some sort of professional development with her last year and she talked about some really interesting uh, research papers that looked at the transferrin, which indicates that transfer to the baby, correct, in the iron mm. studies, yep. that uh, post-iron um, infusion, that that was actually dropping. So ferritin definitely increased for the mum, mm. but the mm. transferrin actually decreased in the iron studies, indicating that quite possibly the transfer of iron to the baby was actually going down despite having now very high ferritin levels. And, you know, possibly that's then ticking the box for the GP, but, you know, is that actually leading to more positive outcomes for the baby? I think the debate is possibly Mm. there for that. I know. And I had a client this week who's been told to have an iron infusion in T1, which Mm. I just thought was the most significant case of malpractice I've heard in a while, because even, you know, even if you look on Ranscog, you, you can clearly see that it's definitely not advised in trimester one because of the obvious risk. Not to mention, yeah, like you said, what the impact can be. And pregnancy aside, they're overprescribed. I mean, as a general rule, you only benefit from it if you're clearly anemic, so hemoglobin less than 110 and ferritin less than 15. Yet people are being offered infusions when their ferritin is 29 or something like that and their hemoglobin's actually fine. Like, yeah, it's I, I can't help but come back to that you know, it has to be about lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's why I've spent the last couple of years taking a much deeper dive into this area because, yeah, we see it being mismanaged and we rarely see the root cause being addressed. And there obviously isn't necessarily a root cause in pregnancy because most of it's normal. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, we have to obviously look at heavy periods and gut health and, and you know, a topic for another time perhaps. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, iron physiology is actually really complicated but i mm. i don't think it's often looked at as that conventionally i think it's really looked at as like oh low iron great take a ferrograd c and you're on your way and i had a gp actually say to me once when i was working on my ferritin levels most women are just iron resistant and i thought i walked out of that appointment and thought like mm, well maybe it's just that you're not looking at that root cause like do most women that you're talking to have heavy periods or do they you know, have some other kind of GI mm. issue that's actually causing that so-called iron resistance, or is it the ferrograd C yeah. that you've been prescribing for your whole career that perhaps yeah, doesn't, work? doesn't work? I mean, the irony. I know. I'm just yeah. I remember thinking like that's a really funny thing to say. Most women are just iron resistant. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I've actually never heard that, but yeah, I think the the hepcidin, like obviously that that negative regulator of iron mm. entry into the cell, is coming into play in lots of these conversations that you and I are having both personally and yeah, professionally. 
Yeah, I think the sort of blanket recommendations around the supplement side of things and then also the iron infusion just seem to completely ignore what the research says about iron physiology and how we can actually improve our levels. It's really quite baffling, I suppose, that that standard of care is yet to be updated. Yeah, because transferrin, like you said, it's a reflection of the iron hunger. So it's the most important marker Mm. that we'd be looking at. And then, you know, so if a doctor is only looking to see ferritin improve as a measure of success, but they've prescribed too much iron, it's just we're just going to literally never achieve that goal. So we've Mm. got to start looking at transferrin and then paying attention to the saturation, which you'll obviously see far too high if you're taking 100, 200 or 300 milligrams of iron a day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, just goes back to obviously early intervention or preconception before you've even gotten pregnant, optimizing your iron levels then Mm. is, um, of course, key. If you haven't allowed yourself that time, you can still do something about it in trimester one and two and, yeah, know that your iron levels are going to go down in pregnancy. It's just a natural part of pregnancy and not necessarily doing anything wrong um, For for that to happen. And every female I've ever worked with would much rather take a really well-absorbed form of iron in a low dose, in an alternate day dosing regime from T1 onwards mm. than end up with an iron infusion or well, discussions thereof. Doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm. I did it. And, you know, like not high doses or anything, but between sort of 25 and 50 meg every second day and obviously the blood testing, the retesting that we we're talking about is important so you can make those adjustments but yeah we obviously don't want to get to the point where our hemoglobin super low because that's where there can start to be concerns for the mm. baby so even the stress of that alone is is concerning so being proactive is key as always right rather than reactive yeah i think that we can apply that to everything mm-hmm. definitely uh, well i've loved our conversation today steph and i just if there's anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation or just direct the listeners to where they can learn more about you and the natural nutritionist. Yeah. One of the things I would like to add is just using this information to empower you to have the right knowledge for your pregnancy, but also inspire you to be able to advocate for yourself because there is a lot of the the system where you're told to do you know, the OGTT, you're told to take a certain vaccine, you're told you have to do vitamin K. And, you know, it's a big undertaking to try and understand um, the research, but being able to advocate for yourself, get the right people to support you and, and take the time to do the research because we research car seats and cots and cribs and baby carriers and anything to the nth degree. So we should be applying the same logic to our health, our pregnancy, and certainly our baby's health and, and future health. So if anything's going to make you find your voice, it should be pregnancy. Um, and I hope, yeah, this conversation has obviously inspired some of that. And yes, my online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. You can um, come and hang out on Instagram at the natural nutritionist. And there's lots of highlights saved for pregnancy and um, postpartum and COVID and all the things that I talk about, iron and thyroid. So yeah, come and hang out and say hi. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Amazing. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.